You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up, y'all? Hey, Kyle. Hey, Kyle. Hey, we've spent all day together today, and I love y'all, but this Q&A could be pretty salty. Just a <laughs> word to the audience. Uh, the you know, gone. Um, we, uh, we, we have been together for quite a long period of time today, and uh, you had a lot of questions, so many good questions. I wish we could get to them all. If you submitted a question on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, let me just say thank you. There was a ton of them, and I've tried to grab some from Facebook, from Twitter, from Instagram, from Patreon. Uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber, don't worry. We are doing a whole separate Patreon Q&A, and I think we answer all the questions uh, that were submitted uh, on Patreon. And so... Tip of the hat to you. But we're glad we're going to jump right in because there were a lot of questions and I want to make sure that we get into this pretty quickly. We got lots of questions mm-hmm. on Instagram about the Enneagram, like a ton. How should we approach the Enneagram? Some suggest it's not a biblical tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, my friends are using the Enneagram. What should I think about the Enneagram? Uh I've heard that the Enneagram is actually satanic. Do you guys have any thoughts on Satanism and the Enneagram? Okay. Lot, and, and listen. Listen, it's of, only if you get the vaccine and use the Enneagram that you run into problems. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Yep. Thank you, Jen. A little vaccine and, humor there for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. And that vaccine humor probably will get us canceled on that <laughs> podcast. Just, thank you for that. We have officially now been flagged in the Apple podcast system. But uh, okay. So Enneagram, we were actually just talking with... With a group of people like today where they mentioned a book that I read recently. And I'm just going to go ahead and just tell you, it's a great book that would be well, well worth reading. It's by Todd Wilson, who's a pastor theologian. He's great. The book is called The Enneagram Goes to Church, Wisdom for Leadership, Worship, and Congregational Life. I've read it. It's a good book to kind of situate how the Enneagram can be helpful. It gets into a little bit of the story of it. And Todd is a pastor theologian. He's not just like, he's not like an Enneagram fanboy. Uh, and can really situate it within the context of wisdom. And that's where it should be situated. I just want to be clear. The Enneagram should be situated within the context of wisdom, meaning the Bible does not speak authoritatively about personality tests and these kinds of inventories, which should give us caution to be prescriptively yes about them and prescriptively no about them. It should caution us to not be very quick to adopt them and to never essentialize them. That's, I think, the biggest danger of the Enneagram is to begin to essentialize an identity marker outside of the identity we have in Christ Jesus. Uh, And so, but we definitely know the Enneagram is like any other tool or not like any other tool. It's like other tools in that we're one body with many members. God has created image bearers, diverse image bearers, and we're trying to navigate what it means to live as a distinct image bearer in unity with other people who are like and unlike us. And if the Enneagram is a helpful tool at getting better about wisely navigating that, great. If it starts to become the prism by which you view yourself and or other people, I would probably be hesitant to use it in that manner. I was going to say another thing I would just say that tends can tend to happen uh, is if you're more interested in the Enneagram than you are in the things of God, 
then I got some questions for you because I know, and, and I would, I'm using Enneagram as a catch-all now for um, personality tests because I do think people get super into uh, enough about you, God, let's talk about me. Um, and, and so if you're someone who uses personality tests to reinforce love of self or fascination with self, then probably don't do that because that's terrible. But if it's a tool to understanding, I, I actually think, so like with the Enneagram in particular, I, w- I went to a, a, one of those trainings um, and um, I thought, you know, the definitions were interesting to me to help me think about how to interact with people. And I think as long as you're not, oh, that is 100% true all the time about a person who is this number. And I don't know what the wings are. It was a lot to take in. And apparently <laughs> because of what they say my number is, I wouldn't care about it, any of it anyway. So great. But um, I think neat. it... I mean, I think it can be, you know, useful to a point in terms of like knowing how to love our neighbor. I think personality tests can be useful for those kinds of things. But if we're more interested in in love of neighbor to the exclusion of considering love of God, um, then I think that's where it gets a little wacky. Whether whether it's satanic or not, you know, I mean, I think it, it just can be used for for not very good purposes. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. I will second um, Kyle's recommendation of this book. Todd Wilson did his PhD at the University of Cambridge in New Testament. So he's not like a theological slouch. Like he loves Jesus. He loves the Bible. I think sometimes people wonder, well, if an Enneagram, Enneagram guru wrote this, like that they really love the Bible. And Todd is one of those guys. He's the president for the Center for Pastor Theologians, an organization that I'm pretty involved with. And when I first started talking about this, if I'm honest, I was a little skeptical. Uh, but then I had him come do some training for us when I was still at the village. And it was gold. Like it was really, really good stuff. And the way that he, he positions it, and I think the way the Enneagram should be positioned is the, the, the first, the, the, the law is fulfilled in, in loving God and loving neighbor as you love yourself. And a lot of the Theo bros like out on Twitter could grow in some self-awareness and an understanding <laughs> of who they are. And so, and, and, like, and congratulations. Now they're coming for you. <laughs> let's go. I'm ready. My name is Kyle Worley. You can find me oh, at Kyle yeah, Worley on gosh. Twitter. <laughs> Mosaic Church Richardson. Um, no, but like, I'm serious. So, but there's often the group that least wants to be involved with the Enneagram most needs it. The group that wants to be most involved in the Enneagram needs to read about the attributes of God. And so it, there probably needs to be a bit of, of, uh, of uh, talking to the other side of the aisle, maybe is the right way to say this. Uh, and one other caveat I'll give is I've seen the Enneagram go really badly when it becomes a license to remain in patterns of sin. Oh, well, heck yeah. I'm, I'm just a one, therefore I, this is how I do it. I'm never going to change. And so never let the Enneagram be an obstacle to your sanctification, but let it be a, be fuel for greater sanctification. That's good. Um, uh, Brent on Instagram asked, is it wrong to present Bible stories to kids in ways that leave open room for misinterpretation solely to make it more palatable? For example, not mentioning the massive loss of life when telling the story of the flood. So like basically like, hey, there are some stories that are pretty hard to hear Mm -hmm. um, and with some narrative details. Is it wrong to leave out some of those narrative details for kids. Well, I think anytime you're dealing with children, you're wanting to communicate things at developmentally appropriate levels for them. So for example, 
you probably wouldn't open to the story of Judah and Tamar with a small child, right? There's time for that story as they get older. Um, or there's a way to tell that story that communicates, you know, what was what was at stake without giving the detail that's not age appropriate for a child. And so, yeah, uh, if a child isn't able to read it on their own, you know, then they, they're relying on you to give them the sense of the story. And I think someone who sets a good example of how to do this is Sally Lloyd-Jones with the with the Jesus Storybook Bible, mm-hmm. where she yeah. doesn't sacrifice any of the tension of the story in the telling of it, but she presents it in ways that are age appropriate. So um, no, you don't want to change the meaning of a story to make it age appropriate for a child, but you you do probably want to give the content to them in ways that are appropriate to their level of understanding. Good. Uh, next question. Uh, Danielle on Patreon, what's happening when Jesus breathes on the disciples in John 20? Just to remind you what John 20 says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from them or from any, it is withheld. What's going on here? I want JT to go first. Yeah, what do you think, JT? Uh, yeah, a couple of things. First, something theological is happening. So first, yeah. we're seeing some Trinitarian relations here. We see at the beginning of John, uh, Jesus, the Son, is is uh, spoken of as being the Logos. The Son is is was with God and is God. And then in John 15, 16, and 17, you see Jesus explaining, okay, not only am I the Son of God, but also I'm leaving and the Helper is going to come. He's going to come and he's going to, uh, he's, the, he's the Helper. He's the Spirit of Truth. He is only going to say those things that he hears me saying. And so we see John going to great lengths to develop a pattern for us for Trinitarian language from the Father through the Son. And now that Jesus is ascending, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is going to be the presence of God that indwells them and empowers them. So first thing, Trinitarian theological language. This is now the mission of Jesus's spirit to carry forward through his disciples. So for us, that means that we have the spirit of Christ uh, at, at conversion breathed in us. It regenerates us, empowers us, and indwells us for greater holiness and mission. That's point number one, uh, Trinitarian theology. But there's also biblical theology happening here. If you look back at, at, at what he says in chapter 20, Jesus is, is breathing out upon the disciples. And this should remind us of Genesis chapter 2 when God is creating humanity, where Genesis chapter two, verse seven says this, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. You also should hear themes of Ezekiel, that these dry bones will one day live again. So if you're thinking Mm -hmm. canonically, humanity is created from the dust. And as Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that we are the men of dust formed after the man of dust, but there is a man who has come from heaven. And Jesus is this man from heaven who is doing the exact same thing that he did in Genesis chapter 2, breathing life into and onto his creation. And here you have these disciples being given second birth or second life by the same creator God who has now come to recreate them in his image. Mm-hmm. That's good. I don't have anything to add. You got something to add to that, Kyle? I dare you. I don't. Nope. <laughs> nope. He hit it out of the park. Sweet. I thought about uh, that one before. 
Samuel on, <laughs> Samuel on Patreon. Should worship leaders include spontaneous worship into a Sunday service, or is that reserved for personal worship only? So, Sam, I, I'm I'm going to assume that what you mean here is like by spontaneous worship. I'm assuming that you're talking about like okay, like the in-between leadership in a songs or maybe like there's not a song that that person was leading that they just begin to sing a prayer that the Lord puts on their heart or something like that. So that's how I'm, that's how I'm reading this question. I don't maybe know, maybe you're asking, maybe there's a spontaneous worship that you're specific kind of thing that you're asking about that I'm not familiar with. But if you're asking, Hey, should worship leaders follow the discern, the, the leading of the Holy spirit while they lead? Yeah, they should do that. Should they do so in a way that runs in contrast with the witness of Scripture? No. Should they do so in a way that draws attention to self? No. Should they do so in a way that is consistent with the uh, purpose of the liturgy of a service, which is public participation of the saints? No. Should they do so in a way that disorders the congregation? No. They should lead in leading with, in keeping with the direction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I can imagine, and I have been in services where the worship leader does break away from a song and prays at mm -hmm. a time that I it, that seems like maybe he was not intending to do so or uh, says, hey, you know what? I, we were going to do this, but I just feel like we should sing this song again or we, we, we would have sung this, but I really just feel like in light of that, the message we've just heard that I think we should sing this. Could we sing that together? I've even seen pastors get up and say, Hey, we were going to do this. Um, but I just feel like the Lord's moving. And, and I want us to step into this instead and have a time of prayer. You know, could you guys follow along with me? I think all of those are acceptable as, as long as they're done in accordance with the witness of scripture and in submission to it in an orderly way in a way that doesn't draw attention to self, but draws attention to Christ. I think those are the non-negotiable caveats. And also that honors the child care workers who are watching your children. <laughs> yes, amen. <laughs> yes, thank you. Well, and I think we can assume that when the spirit moves, uh, then we're going to experience spontaneity. And that seems to be the exact opposite of what Paul tells the church in Corinth. When the spirit moves, you should experience order, according to Paul. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the whole problem with the church in Corinth is about disordered Lord's Supper and disordered worship service. And after going through, hey, here's what a worship service should look like, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 26 and following, he finally gets down to verse 33 and he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And that's not just meant to be some theological abstract truth. It's meant to be your, your worship services should be ordered because your worship services are led by the spirit and the spirit doesn't bring disorder and spontaneity, but rather he brings order and peace. Mm -hmm. That's really good. All right. That was really good. Uh, Sarah on Patreon asked a question. I get this question all the time. It's a really good one. Uh, why in Psalm 51.4 does David say, against you only have I sinned, when he clearly has sinned against both Bathsheba and Uriah? How can I make sense of this? Mm -hmm. Janet, yeah. let me give something you want to say. Yeah, this is a great question because it's a genre question. And so if you think about the way that the narrative plays out in 2 Samuel, even the words that Nathan the prophet uses when he confronts David about his sin clearly show that David's sin is against Uriah and Bathsheba um, and also against God. And so I think that the way that we understand the Psalms is that they are a poetic expression of a truth and they use language in poetic ways. So in Psalm 51, later on, David is going to say, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. But we know that 
God didn't literally break his bones. And so he's using a poetic expression to make a point about repentance. And so that's what we're seeing earlier on in the Psalm when he makes this statement as well. He's using hyperbole. He's saying against you and you alone have I sinned. In other words, the essence of all sin is that it is a crime against God. And any sin against our neighbor is ultimately a, a sin against God himself because our neighbor, neighbor bears the image of God. So he's, he's using poetic language to heighten his point. But because it's poetic language, we read it literally instead of literally, and we read it in relation to what we would take as a literal, a more literal telling in, in the historical narrative that we find in, in 2 Samuel when we let them live together. Good. Breton on Twitter, what are common decisions and ways churches unknowingly undermine a healthy ecclesiology? So, Thank you, Breton. Um, ecclesiology, doctrine of the church. So what Breton's asking is, what are common decisions and ways churches unknowingly undermine a healthy view of the church? Well, one, I, I, there are a lot, this can happen in a number of ways. And it, it, sometimes it's not, I mean, gosh, I would imagine there are ways that I am unknowingly undermining a healthy ecclesiology now. I'm not, I don't have no pretense that Mosaic is filled with perfect pastors and that we've, we're adequately depicting the, uh, all that God has for the local church. But there are some stumbling blocks, I think, that are icebergs that it seems like are pretty common for churches to hit. I think one would be confusion on the titles of the offices of the church, where you'd see pastor used indiscriminately. You're like, why is this person a pastor and that person's not a pastor? And what's the difference between a pastor and an elder here? Right? Like, So like it's used as an honorary title instead of having an actual role. Attached yeah. to it. Yeah, that's important. Um, and the same would go for deacon and minister. Like, okay, what's a deacon here? What's a minister here? What's Are they different? Um, and then how do these pastors and ministers or elders and deacons, how do they relate to other staff? So I think that's a way where there could be maybe not knowingly or it even certainly uh, intentionally an undermining of a healthy ecclesiology. Um, I think there are other ways. Uh, for example, like while I think that there are spaces for the church to allow the practice of the ordinances in other contexts. I don't think that they should be encouraging that like, Hey, go do this uh, on your own. Uh, so uh, I would be, I would say that's a way that churches can undermine a healthy ecclesiology is that the ordinances just become like, you know, you might have somebody who's like, yeah, me and some friends had some pizza and Dr. Pepper and, you know, had communion together. And you're like, what? Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you didn't have communion <laughs> together. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, but in a more simple way, I think that just saying like, uh, I think more than anything, the way to undermine uh, a healthy ecclesiology is for your people to not know what the church is. Uh, like just to never do substantive instruction and teaching on the church. So that would be a few ways. Do you, can you all think of anything? Yep. Um, I would say if we think that the gathering is for adults, and the children have no place in there. Um, I've done some writing on this and some thinking yes. on this. I know. <laughs> it's top like of written, mind. Have you, have you written something recently on yeah, this? It's top of mind only because during the pandemic in particular, when children were worshiping with families, you know, when everybody was, even if it was in your living room, um, many of them had never seen baptism or the Lord's Supper because they had had lived their church existence in a separate space. And so it, all these questions began to bubble up. What is that? What am I witnessing? What's the significance of that? And hearing people's testimonies. And so I think that we we often um, 
for pragmatic reasons, maybe have children's church happening simultaneously to um, what's going on in uh, quote big church, and that we should be looking for ways to children for children to have regular exposure and participation in um, those those spaces. And I'm not saying everybody always overhears this comment and thinks that I'm saying throw away children's ministry and just have every child birth through 12th grade in the service. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that a school-age child is old enough to be brought into the service and given exposure to what's happening there and invited into it. Um, Whether that's once a month or whether it's every week, depending on how your church is structured, but it should be more top of mind, I believe, from an ecclesiological standpoint. Yeah, I think one of the biggest, I'm actually literally in the middle of a sermon series as we're recording this called The Local Church, called to be a family. And one of the, I've been just talking to my members about what are some of the challenges or misconceptions that you have either either heard about the church or currently experienced. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, people think the church is just like any other membership. I can kind of come and go as I please. I can go to the next, you know, it's almost like a YMCA or 24-hour fitness or anytime fitness membership. You just kind of come and go as you please rather than actually a family to belong to. And I think the way you can most clearly see that is, are you coming on Sundays in order to be an audience that watches an Mm -hmm. entertainment service? Or are you coming together as a family to become witnesses of Jesus together, Jesus together as you seek to use gifts and give your gifts away to the rest of the family? And go ahead, go ahead, Jen. No, I was just picking up on that. I've seen such a trend towards seeing the time in worship as therapeutic, um, right. mm-hmm. as self-care instead of as, um, you know, it's like where I get what I need for the week in, instead of something much bigger than that. That's right. Uh, okay, here's a good one. Uh, thanks for the show notes. Oh, hey. Well, thank you, Susan. Um, we're glad that... Or <laughs> Suzanne. Suzanne. Yeah. We, we, we have show notes. Um, and uh, uh, thank you. Can we call... We'll just call our show note Katie. Can we We call him? Yeah, show note Brad. Katie. Producer show Brad. Note show Katie. note Katie. Big, big shout out to show note Katie. Thank you, Katie. Uh, uh, Suzanne on Twitter asked, what are some good resources for connecting the family lines, relationships, and blessings, curses from the Old Testament through to the New Testament, what can help me not miss the references original readers would have understood? Well, there's kind of two questions here. If you're looking for a good resource on connecting family lines, relationships, blessings, curses, there's a great little biblical theology book that I give to people all the time. It's called As Far As the Curse is Found, The Covenant Story of Redemption by Michael Williams. Very good. I like it a lot. And it's going to trace a lot of those themes. So that may be a good way that you can trace some of the family lines, covenant blessings and curses and all of that stuff from the Old Testament to the New Testament, far as the curse is found, uh, which also uses a line from my favorite Christmas hymn, Mm -hmm. which I'll take that every day. But what can help me not miss the references original readers would have understood? I don't know. Can you guys think of a a resource for that? Yeah, I mean, I think good one-stop shopping is Waltke's Old Testament theology. It's a little bit, I mean, it's a big, it's a big book and it costs a little bit of money, but if you're going to spend time in the Old Testament, you will use it. You'll get your money's worth out of it. And then I would just say that generally, if you have a good study Bible, um, you're going to find some of that in, in the footnotes. And so one of the ones that I have really enjoyed from that standpoint, and it's because they're coming from a covenant theology perspective, is the Reformation Study Bible. It has really good notes that tend, tend to speak toward those kinds of uh, questions. Cool. Hey, we got this in a lot of different ways and I didn't include it on here, but I do think it's a question. Lots of people were like, can we get a last exchange on Christophanes and Theophanes? No, no one asked for that. That is a lie. 
Jen, go look uh, at the Instagram comments. It is like a flood of people. So here's what I'm going to do. I want to give each one of us 30 seconds to basically, and I'll go first, and then I'll throw it to JT. Okay. And then, Jen, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it for you there at the end. Sound good? Sure. I want to I, I go last. No, JT, no. I want to go last. No. I promise I'll keep it to 30 no, seconds. you can't keep it to 30 seconds and you don't get to go last. I'm going last. Oh, my gosh. All right. So I'm going to set the timer for myself here. This is mostly for me because Jen will probably knock it out of the park, I'm sure. Um, okay, here we go. I'm setting the timer. Okay, I'm I am more comfortable than I was at the beginning of our study in Genesis saying that there are some appearances of the angel of the Lord that seem where where it seems like the audience or the people who receive that angelic visitation are responding in a way that seems disproportionate to it being angelic. I do not know what it is. I am more comfortable saying that it could quite possibly be Theophanus or Christophanus in nature, although I still have some hiccups when it comes to just saying it clearly. That's it. 30 seconds. That's my take on it. I am okay. more comfortable than I was. Okay. Who's right. next? It's going to be, he, he wants to go last. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> Is the timer you, running? All you, Jen, and go. Okay. I, I am comfortable with saying that they are theophanies. In fact, I think that that's the way we're supposed to read them. But to go beyond that seems speculative to me. And I would say that the amount of speculation required to draw connections to a Christophany interpretation are not necessarily worth our time because they don't add much to our understanding of the bigger uh, message of the stories in which these occurrences are set. I left five. You can take my extra five seconds there, JT. Wow. Wow. Okay. I really appreciate that. I've been doing some uh, listening to somebody else, a theologian that I highly respect that I think is just great, who teaches this as a Christophany. And I actually want to play the recording for you. (laughs) Where we pick up the story tonight. So they've crossed the Jordan, they've been circumcised, they've, they have had the Passover, so they are ceremonially ready to go in and begin to take the land. And then we see Joshua, and what's he doing? He seems to be out, scoping out what's going to happen next, right? So it says that he's out. Let's start in verse 13 of Joshua chapter 5. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Okay, so let's just stop right there. So we have this man and he has his drawn sword. And so what do you think, why do you think Joshua asked this question? When he sees him and he's toward Jericho, what do you think he's thinking? Is this someone coming out from Jericho or is this one of my own people, right? And so he says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And he's got his sword drawn. We'll talk about why that is in just a minute. And so the man, as we'll call him in verse 14, it says, and he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. I had you look this up in another translation. And what did it say? It says his response to Joshua's question is neither. I'm not for you or for your adversaries, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come and listen to Joshua's response. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now that Lord there is not Lord like Lord God. It just means he recognizes that he has lordship over him in some sense. But the fact that he fell to the ground and worshiped and was not rebuked for it 
tells us that this person who is talking to him is some sort of theophany. It is a human representation of God himself. And anytime we see a human representation of God himself in scripture, most scholars refer to that as a pre-incarnate Christ. Why? Because Christ is God in the body. So let's talk about some other times that we see a theophany like this. Okay, first of all, I don't know where you got that audio because I pulled that down. So obviously... Let's just just say, Jen, you have a spy in your own camp. Okay, this was a setup. This was a total setup. I I, I just... I, I was doing my own research. I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to one of the best Bible teachers I know and see what she has to say about this. Well, you know, I taught that about uh, eight years ago. So we all grow and learn. No, it's, you know, what's hilarious, Jen, is that you should look at JT and, and say right now, why have you plowed with my heifer? Um, because because uh, this information came in through, uh, uh, through a little bit of, uh, oh, I would say some uh, backdoor negotiating with, with, uh, with somebody very close to the Wilkins family. Oh, no. uh, oh, who, man. Who, who said, hey, here's what you should do on a Q&A episode. <laughs> Ice her out. Ice her out. Oh my gosh. I just, when JP sent me that, he said, Kyle, we have to play this on the QA episode. Well, I was really grateful for that biblically insightful and theologically rich teaching. Okay. On the right. angel Where of the Lord. Were we? Where were we in the QA? Mm. Yep, 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 mm. yep, yep. Uh, thanks for being a good sport about that, Jen. Yeah. We love you, Jen. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Uh, Corbin on Twitter, uh, it says, in light of Genesis, take your pick. Sega Genesis or Super Nintendo? Super Nintendo. Yeah, that's me too. Super Nintendo. Jen, do you know either of these two I systems? I was going to say Atari. Anyone? <laughs> Atari. 
little pong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Atari, yeah. we'll take it. Uh, on a more serious note, if you were to teach a Bible study through Mark's gospel, have you taught through Mark yet, Jen? Uh-uh. Okay. Uh, okay, I taught Mark uh, uh, at Mosaic. It was our first sermon series. If you were to teach a Bible study through Mark's gospel, what are some overarching themes and ideas you would want to emphasize? Well, this the first one that comes to mind is just, uh, and this is, if you've heard anything on Mark, this is what you've heard, but it bears itself out and it's really fun from a narrative component while you're teaching through Mark, is that Mark is so action-oriented. I mean, that may seem like a rhetorical device, but it's fascinating because you can follow along with the gospel of Mark and you get this phrase, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. You're just moving forward in the action. It's just kind of carrying you, this gust of wind, really, so to speak, as Mark is moving you forward in the story of Jesus. But I think another of the overarching themes that you would want to point to with the gospel of Mark is the way that Jesus is being portrayed as a... Uh, gosh, as a Jewish king messiah, fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies of who he would be, who this king would be, and the role that Jesus's miracles play in establishing the kingdom. Mark is full of miracles and the miraculous deeds. And it's important to see that this is a king who is healing in his kingdom. Uh, and I think that's really, really crucial that the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is a, is a kingdom where uh, the sick and the lame will be healed. And uh, I think that's a huge, huge contribution. Uh, and then ultimately that healing is not accomplished by any one specific miracle, but primarily through the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. And so anyways, so those are a few things. Would y'all add anything to that? JT, Jen? I think, no, two, two things I would say that real similar to what you said, Mark really has two themes. The first half of the book is about the identity of the Messiah as the son of God. So you're getting this picture of who he is and Kyle just teased this out. He's coming with powerful miracles to demonstrate his identity. But then moving forward from chapter 831 and on, it's about the mission of this suffering Lord, which is supposed to be a big shock to the reader. Like, wait a second, he's now going to Jerusalem to suffer, die and be crucified. So two primary things, the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. It's good. It's good. Uh, Courtney on Twitter, uh, best, most accessible book on church history for the lay Christian. Jen, what book do you, you have one that you recommend all the time? I can't ever remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bruce Shelley's Church History in Plain Language. There you go. You guys use that for one of the core classes, yeah? At mm-hmm. TBC? Yeah, it's super readable. I've got like, a couple recommendations. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is. Well, re- repeat it again. Bruce Shelley. Bruce Shelley's um, Church History in Plain Language. Okay, cool. JT? Justo Gonzalez has two volumes. That's also it, it reads like a novel. It's called The Story of Christianity. It's a little bit longer, but it reads a lot like Shelley's. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's great. If you're wanting like a super, super, super short introduction, Je- uh, D. Jeff Bingham has a pocket history introduction to church history. Mm-hmm. And it is, I mean, we're talking like, it's like 80 or 90 pages, fits in your, like super small, but it is really, really good. Yeah, those are all good. Mark Knoll has one called Turning Points, yep. which basically goes through the history of the church and hits these hinge moments. Also really interesting um, and worth checking out. So good, great question, Courtney. Uh, this name, I am so sorry. I am terrified that I'm going to butcher it. It is it, it Vanessa? spelled L-E. <laughs> Call back. Uh, <laughs> it's spelled L-E-G-A-R-E. I'm going to say Laguerre. Uh, but it could be Lagar. It could be Lagari. I don't know what it is. If I have butchered your name, I, I tried my best. Um, what is this? I put it in Google Translate earlier today. And so I am so sorry. Oh my gosh. I, 
I was really trying. Uh, what is the number one book or resource you wish you would have had used, read earlier in your ministry first year rather than later? What is the number one book or resource? And let's say the Bible. Yes, we wish we always <laughs> would have read the Bible more than we did in our first year of ministry. But beyond that, what do you wish you would have used, had read earlier in your ministry rather than later? Hmm. I've never, I've never been asked this question. That Indian Graham book. I'm just kidding. That's not it. Um, I think, so I'm going to give just a general category of book that I wish I'd had, but I'm going to tell you a specific like current version of that book that I would recommend. But I wish that I had been introduced to the category of biblical theology. Hmm. I, I encountered systematic theology pretty quickly, but biblical theology as someone who was teaching the Bible week in and week out, I needed to understand what it was and how it, how it worked. And so um, Andrew Wilson has a new book out. It's called God of All Things. And I absolutely love this book. He basically takes an image or a theme and he traces it um, throughout the Bible for you. And it's very quick. The chapters are, I mean, it's so well done because they're short chapters and it's very kind of devotional in nature, the way that it's written. Um, but it is so well done. And I wish I had had a book like that in the early years of my teaching the Bible. It would have, it would have saved me a lot of, a lot of time and searching. Okay. I'm going to probably say Bob Inc., the Reformed Dogmatics. I had grown up around <laughs> Calvin. I had grown up around Calvin, and so I was pretty familiar with Calvin's Institutes and had engaged with them in late high school and college. I felt pretty comfortable with the Institutes, but really, Bavink was not on my radar until probably 2014, 2015. And gosh, that You're was welcome. felt so much later than it could have. Now, the Reformed Dogmatics and everything that they've translated, he, they just put out Reformed Ethics a year ago yep. or this year. And I will probably grab everything that comes out that's translated as soon as I can so that I can read it. Uh, so I would say Bob Inc., just as a category. Kyle, I have to say on this Q&A episode, you're showing an enormous amount of sellout capacity with regard to JT. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Everybody can be bought. Kyle's price was low. I don't know what happened. I don't know where I was when this conversation was had, but I feel like I've been talked about behind my back. You uh, 30 pieces of silver is what JT made. <laughs> I, uh, I actually would say bobbing too. People know that here. Like, And I, I think this is an important, um, Kyle, that Kyle's highlighting is, and this is coming from somebody who's written a ministry book, like a, like a philosophy of ministry book. I really believe conversations around the philosophy of ministry are important, but they are secondary to primary theology conversations. And I can't tell you how often I'm, as a pastor, I'm having to, to deal with serious ethical, philosophical issues that I would be entirely ill-equipped for if I was only reading philosophy of ministry books. So to familiarize mm -hmm. yourself with the great conversations in Christian history and in Christian theology, which Bavink does, I think, the best job of, uh, then you're going to be ill-equipped. And so, yeah, bobbing. Yeah, and I, and I, and in a lot of Jen's comment, I'd like to change my answer. No, you to, can't change uh, your answer. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, you never read enough bobbing. No, no. There's a there's a book that recently came out on the Ten Commandments oh, that I really wish oh, I would have yeah. had. It's called Ten Words yeah. to Live By. Did you and, come to this conclusion because of a Christophany? Because I'm pretty sure that's what's <laughs> happening right now. No, I think it was a I think it was a confrontational genophany that I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Lindsay on Instagram, what are helpful responses? Oh, this is right up your alley, Jen. What are helpful responses when participants in church discipleship programs and Bible studies consistently don't do the homework? And she did caveat this. I took this out of asking the question. She was like, okay, we've laid out the rules of engagement Mm -hmm. very clearly from the front. So like all of the stuff she was saying, we've done that. We've been Uh really clear about it. We do the, uh, the orientation session and they're still showing up to this class or to our Bible study group having not done the homework? What do you do? What are helpful responses when that begins to happen? Yeah, well, so you're not their parents, right? You're the person who's leading the environment. And so I think the first diagnostic that you have to do is, is there a reason that I am, is there a, is there a barrier I'm throwing up to them doing the, the homework? And so in other words, if they perceive it to be busy work because I haven't connected the homework to the teaching and what happens in the in the gathered environment, that's a big reason that people don't persevere in doing the homework. Also, if the teaching that's happening in the environment is not building, if it's not an extension of the homework, um, then again, they'll perceive it to be busy work. So in other words, we, we will tell our people, you should have trouble keeping up if you haven't done the homework. And then we have to be faithful to teach in such a way that they would actually have some trouble keeping up. Um, and so rather than policing it by like doing workbook checks or any, anything like that, <clears throat> you have to um, set up the environment so that it is actually dependent on them doing the homework for them to have the successful learning outcome. But you can also have, you know, like little testimonials where a woman stands up and talks about how she used to not do the homework and then she did it and it just totally changed the way that she was learning. And so you can you can stack the deck in your favor because it genuinely, assuming you have the right homework in place and you're connecting it to the teaching, it, it is genuinely good for them. That's good. That's good. Hayden on Instagram, can young children of believers partake in the Lord's Supper along with their parents? Ooh, Capti Bapti. I want you to answer well, this one. Well, Hayden, let me uh, <laughs> let me put my, my Baptist bow tie on. Um, no, uh, Hayden, uh, if the young children of believers are also Christians, then yes, they can partake in the Lord's Supper. Um, but if their young children are not Christians— then I would not encourage them to partake in the Lord's Supper because uh, we would we would want to make sure that they do not partake in a manner unworthy and so subsequently sow judgment upon themselves or at the very least deception. But I would say no, children of believers should not partake in the Lord's Supper. Now, you may be asking this because there is a school of thought that suggests that children of believers— um, because of their proximity to believing parents, are recipients of some of the benefits of being uh, within God's covenant blessings. I would actually say I agree with that. I do think that children of believers receive spiritual blessing by virtue of being proximate to the faith of faithful parents. But I do not mean, uh, believe that means that they experience saving benefits, nor should they experience or, or participate in ordinances that are um, withheld until the people have experienced the saving benefits of God's covenant love. So, but they're a great opportunity to instruct kids. Every time when my daughter's sitting with me, when we take the Lord's Supper, I, you know, because I get to, sometimes I get to sit with them in service. I try to get as low as I can on her level. And I try to explain exactly what's happening, why it's happening and what it is. Even as the pastor is talking through it, I'll just kind of whisper to her and walk her through it. And it's an incredible opportunity to, to talk through it. So it is an evangelistic opportunity. Yes. I would just add, if a child has made a profession of faith, sometimes parents are still like, well, I don't know. Was that real or was that not real? And I do think there is a liability in withholding the elements from a child who has made a convictional um, 
profession of faith, it's not your job to parse down to the nth degree whether that was, you know, maybe they can't completely articulate the gospel to you. As someone who was saved as a child, I could not have articulated the gospel to you, but I was saved. And so uh, you end up, you can end up creating a more costly scenario by withholding the elements from a child because you think you haven't fully vetted their story than if you were to take them at their word and, and give them the elements. Yeah, I agree 100% and just want to say amen to that. JT, anything to add? You look like you were gearing up. No, I don't think so. I've been thinking a lot about this actually recently, just now that I'm a lead pastor and have to make decisions like this. uh, I would make sure you withhold the elements from a child who isn't baptized yet. So that's the first ordinance that you would participate in as a new believer, not the Lord's Mm -hmm. Supper. So it's not an evangelistic tool like, oh, you just got saved here. Here's the Lord's Supper. First you you participate in baptism and then the Lord's Supper. But I agree with Jen. I I think sometimes the Baptist tradition has probably been a little too cautious. And we wonder why kids are leaving the church. It's because we never invited them to participate in the church. We viewed them with skepticism for far too long. So to invite them into the church, once they're able to make a credible profession of faith and do that through baptism and the Lord's Supper, I think that's wonderful. Absolutely. Mitch on Instagram, what is the difference between God's presence in Eden, tabernacle, or the temple and his omnipresence? Uh, We actually talked a little bit about this. You remember, JT, we would talk about this in the training program. Yeah. Um, And I would distinguish between God's... uh, special presence and his general presence. Actually, the person who taught me this distinction was Bruce Walkie. So another nod for Old Testament theology. There you go. Um, but redemptive presence and general presence, omnipresence being God's general presence uh, through which he rules and reigns over all things. Uh, and that includes, uh, but is not limited to, uh, his blessed presence or his redemptive presence by which he directs his uh sometimes called the beneficent presence uh, or the blessed presence uh, to particular places at particular times throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament is demonstrated through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So I would say there is the difference between God's omnipresence and his particular presence or his redemptive or beneficent or blessed presence is that God's omnipresence is a general presence of his rule and reign over the whole world and his uh unique presence or blessed presence is manifested for the good of his people uh, in unique times and places and ways. That's probably how I... And omnipresence shouldn't... Yeah, that's exactly right, Kyle, but it shouldn't be construed as to like saying that... Um, I, I wish like I could see people who are doing this. Like if you grab the air or like you hit a table, you're not hitting or grabbing on God. Like that's not the kind of presence we're talking about with omnipresence. We're talking about able to do whatever he wants, wherever he wants. That's, that's what omnipresent means. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Jesse on Instagram, what's a novel or story outside of scripture that has had an impact on your life or worldview? A novel or story outside of scripture that has had an impact on your life or worldview? For me, it'd be Lord of the Rings. That's with that, like with a bullet, like (laughs) there's nothing even, nothing even comes close uh, at all. So it's definitely shaped the way that I view the world, 100%. I don't know if I can narrow it down. That's a really hard question. JT, do you have one? I don't either. I mean, yes, but it's like, it's hard to pick one. Yeah. What about like Chronicles of Narnia? That's, that's a popular one, I feel like. Yeah, no. I mean, yeah, but that feels so mm. obvious, I guess, but... um no, I mean, I and I don't tend to read a lot of Christian authors for fiction. I mean, there aren't a lot of them, I don't think. 
I mean, well, I guess there are. There's a whole Amish romance genre out there that I'm <laughs> avoiding. Um, hey, can I can I can I take the question? I mean, because she says story, so it doesn't have to just be a novel. Fair, mm-hmm. sure, fair. Uh, one of my favorite film stories is Band of Brothers. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's good. And one of the reasons it's coming up again, number one, I love, I just love the series, but the uh, sequel to it is coming out where it's the, uh, I gosh, I forget what it's called, but it's the Air Force. I think it's the Air Force version of mm-hmm. Band of Brothers that just started production yesterday is what I was told. Oh, wow. Cool. So yeah, Band of Brothers for me, my grandfather served in World War II as a colonel. And so I, I'm always a sucker for stories like that. Just uh, the unbelievable amount of human suffering, tragedy, sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Uh, willing to to die for the sake of others is powerful. Um, so there's a short story by O. Henry called "The Gift of the Magi" that I can't I can't even get through with. I tried to read it to Claire's second grade class one time, and um, they never asked me back again for book reading time <laughs> because I disintegrated in front of this room of kids, and I just kept trying to finish the story, and it was. A mess. It was an ugly cry. Yeah, it's the story about where um, the it's a, a young couple and she um, wants to get him a, a pocket watch chain for Christmas, but she doesn't have any money. And so she has her beautiful long hair cut off to pay for the watch chain. I'm going to cry even just telling you about this story. And he he had wanted to buy her this beautiful hair comb that he knew she wanted. And so they show up to have their little simple dinner together. And he's bought her the hair comb and she's cut off her hair. Well, he sold his pocket watch to get her the hair comb. It's the sweetest story. Wow. And it's just a beautiful picture of sacrificial love. And so love it a whole lot. And I just ruined the whole story for you because I told you how it ends. Well, that's great. Save, save me the time of reading it. Um, <laughs> Uh, the Spark Notes version. <laughs> it's a uh, short story to begin with. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Then you gave me, you gave me the, that bar. <laughs> you gave me the tweet. <laughs> um, uh, Kate Chill on Instagram. What is the discipline of God? Is it us living with consequences of sin or something more? You think about Hebrews, it talks about the Lord disciplines the one mm-hmm. he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So, what is the discipline of God? So asking whether it's sort of active or passive or the whole natural and logical consequences. Yeah, I think so. Does God actively act against his children? Is that what the question is? I think so. Is it us living with the consequences of sin or something more? I think she's wrestling with like, is how should I understand this? Should I be, is it merely God allowing us to enter into sin and then the consequences of uh, sin is the discipline of God or is there a is there something beyond that that is something more active in nature of a correction? Uh, I'm going to say if you just keep the parenting analogy in place, that it could be it could be both. I don't know that we necessarily know how to discern when it is one or the other, and I'm not sure it even necessarily matters. I mean, the whole point of a to, if if a if a parent is thinking about active discipline, like making something painful on purpose for a child, that is because developmentally the child is not able yet to understand a natural or a logical consequence. And so um, I can see where maybe God deals the same way with us, the you know, in our spiritual immaturity. But as we grow in maturity, it's it's easier for us to discern the way of wisdom based on the fallout from our decisions. 
So he's a heavenly parent who is perfect. So, you know, the, the problem comes in when we, when we take this analogy and we muddy it with, with sinful parents who don't always assign consequences as they should or who overpunish or underpunish. But God is not like that. And so um, no matter whether we say it's an active or a passive uh, form of discipline, we can know that it is perfect and good in the way that it's administered. It's good. Um, okay, uh, one more serious question, and then we'll jump. We can jump into. Yeah, I got one fun question for us to end. Um, this one is from Liren on Patreon. What is the most frequent question each of you receive? Like, what's the mm-hmm. maybe at most might be too hard to say. I mean, who could know? But mm-hmm. what is maybe one of the more common questions that each of us receive? Mm-hmm. Uh, the email I get all the time, and it's not a question. It's more of a rhetorical question. But this is the question I get all the time. It's I've been in the church my whole life. How come no one has taught me to to learn my Bible like this? That's all a number number one email I get. Yep. Mm-hmm. I would imagine you hear the same thing about doctrine. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Whether it's Bible literacy, doctrine, specifically Trinitarian questions. Trinitarianism is the big one. Mm-hmm. When people are like, why didn't anybody ever talk to me about the doctrine of the Trinity? Mm-hmm. And I think it's even funny. Like it is, we should, we rightly call it, we, blah, 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 we rightly call it the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, but like, it's not a doctrine of God. It is God. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like that's, I think something that's strange for people is I think, oh, this is something about him. No, 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 God is Trinity. Uh, and so once they begin kind of getting, oh my goodness, I'm talking about a God I don't even have language to talk about. Mm-hmm. Specifically Trinitarian prayer. How do I speak to him? How do I commune and abide in the Father, Son, and Spirit? Agreed. Uh, all right, fun one to end on. K Carlisle on Instagram. Favorite chips and dip? And then Jesse asks, if you could only eat one dessert for the rest of your life, what would it be? Chips and dip. Let's start there. (laughs) It's guac for me. Chips and guac. Okay. But from where? Uh, Media from scratch. They put that bacon in there. Oh, man. I miss that stuff so much. We used to eat that together. I know. Praise God. Every time JT, they'd roll up and JT would be like, yeah, don't go. Don't like, like, give us the bacon. Uh Give us the bacon. Oh, yeah. Give (laughs) us the bacon. Then your meal that comes so and fun. you're just staring at the meal like, I don't know why I even ordered this. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, I was going to say Torchy's chips and queso. Oh, that's man, good that's good yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would actually go for, my Macy makes my favorite guacamole. Uh, just gu- chips and guacamole made by Macy English. And then I'll get us into the dessert. She makes the perfect chocolate chip cookies, like the best. Like they're simple. It's easy. Does she, she make them on we- the grill or no? Oh man, that's funny, Jen. <laughs> hey, hey, just for you, when you come visit me next week, I'm doing that. Worth <laughs> no. what we're having. Yeah. <laughs> Never again. <laughs> smoked, that was a, smoked chocolate chip cookies. That was a bad idea. We're yeah, going to yeah. let the people <laughs> be in suspense about that story. <laughs> Uh, my favorite dessert is actually one that I make, so that probably makes me a narcissist. Um, but it is a white chocolate bread pudding. Ooh, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, yeah, key lime pie for me. A good key lime pie. I'm, I could I could eat a whole key lime pie just myself. I'd like to see that. Uh, well. We can make it happen. <laughs> that, is an, that is an easy request to grant. Um, and that is a great place for us to land. Uh, hey, we are so glad. Oh, we did not talk about- I was about, just going to ask. This what? is the, this oh is the moment. Oh my gosh. The big reveal. This is the moment. We've got, we actually have two big reveals for this episode. Speaking of dessert. Two big, two big ones. Um, why don't, Jen, I, I'll do the other. I'll do one of them. Why don't you do what we're studying next year? Guys. Guess what we're going to study next year? It's not in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. 
Thank and it's, God. And it's not one of the gospels. It's one of the epistles. And it's a really important one. They're all important, guys, because it's the word of God. We're going to study Romans. Romans. Yes. Romans. Romans. Uh-huh. Friends, God, Romans, I'm- countrymen, lend me your ears. <laughs> it's going to be great. I am psyched. I mean, doctrine of sin, justification, faith, grace, providence, sovereignty. Dispensationalism. Oh my gosh, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Oh and there's boy. not one um, single Christophany in the whole book. So you're all safe, everybody. Yeah, yeah, because you, you, you would know about them. You would know about <laughs> those Christophanies. Because the Scott, yeah, because Jen, I don't want us to pretend that the scholarly community is somehow radically united on every aspect of Romans. Because uh, I am sure we will have plenty of opportunities for disagreement. Uh, but man, Romans is going to be. So good. We mm-hmm. so I've started preaching in Romans. Mm-hmm. Jen, I think you're we're going to be teaching through it. Uh huh. Yeah, you're going to be teaching through it. And then JT, have you? Have I'm you still, made it I'm still towing it around. I'm probably I'm probably like seventy percent there. I'm going to start Romans. Okay. I think in September. You'll know if he did or not because he might be like super quiet on all the episodes, and I'll <laughs> be like arm wrestling to say things. Yeah, it's going to be, be quiet. It's going to be really exciting. I got to tell you, since we launched Knowing Faith, I've wanted us to do Romans together, and this is going to be a blast to do. It is going to be incredible. And we're going to try to get some incredible guests. There is no shortage of Pauline scholars. You throw a you throw a rock into a crowd of New Testament scholars and you're going to hit 40 Paul scholars, I would imagine. So but it'll be really They're going to be mad. They're going to be mad. They're going to be happy. <laughs> Yeah, it was not a great analogy. Oh, we'll just move past it. But Romans is going to be great. And I do have one more announcement for you, which we're proud to announce that next year we're actually launching another podcast. What? And oh, yeah, surprise, surprise. JT and Jen didn't know about that until today. Uh, But Training the Church, uh, which is um, kind of a, uh, a banner headline. Uh, it's the organization that stands behind Knowing Faith, and we run a cohort out of training the church. There's a number of things there, but we're going to be launching a second podcast. That podcast is the Family Discipleship Podcast with Adam Griffin, which will be so exciting. Adam Griffin co-wrote a book with Matt Chandler, and it had a foreword by another person. I don't remember who that was. Some rando. Some rando endorsed it. Uh, But yes, uh, we have uh, another podcast coming down the line, and that is the Family Discipleship Podcast. You're going to hear more about that in the days ahead, uh, and we'd be really excited for you to check it out. And so in June, we're going to drop an interview uh, that I have with Adam Griffin that will give you all the details on how you can follow along. He's got some great guests lined up, some incredibly just practical topics when you think through issues of family discipleship. And we couldn't be more excited to see this podcast come out. We've been working on it for some time. And Adam's been thinking through issues of family discipleship for gosh, over a decade. Mm -hmm. Uh, And his book is really, really good and really, really helpful. And so we can't wait to hear the podcast and hear them explore a lot of issues they got to cover in the book and a lot of issues that they just couldn't. And there wasn't enough time and space for. So I'm really excited about that, right? I mean, that's a cool thing. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. So, hey, we are so honored that you're listening to Knowing Faith and that you've been following along with us. Truly, I have to say the Knowing Faith podcast audience is incredible. You are generous and kind. And I can just say this. I love watching you interact with one another in the comments uh, on our social media platforms because I see that you see what we're trying to accomplish here, which is convictional charity and to be charitably convictional in all that we're doing. And so thank you for dialoguing and discussing 
practicing and following along with us. You can join the conversation by finding us on social media at Knowing Faith Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want some cool stuff behind the scenes, some special episodes, early releases with ad-free episodes, you can go to patreon.com and you can check out Knowing Faith, patreon.com slash knowingfaith. Find out some cool stuff, a monthly newsletter that comes out, all sorts of stuff that's over there. And uh, thank you for following along with us this season. And we will see you next season as we jump into the letter to the church in Rome. Grace and peace. Peace.